So over the past couple of weeks, we have been walking through a series called Best Summer Yet. Thanks, Chris. Uh, We've been walking through a series called Best Summer Yet, and a few weeks ago, you heard from Pastor Matt, and he talked about cultivating a heart and a rhythm of prayer in your life. And over the past few weeks, you've heard from Pastor Trey uh, on developing rhythms of praising God and of offering undivided worship to God. So we're going to continue in that series this week talking about developing a rhythm of proclaiming Jesus in your life. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, that's in the New Testament. It goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, then Romans, if you're having trouble finding it. We'll be in Romans chapter 10. But while you're turning there, um, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever felt like you're the last to know something? I feel like that often in my house. Um, Friday rolls around, the work week gets finished, and I say, hey, uh, honey, what's, what are the plans for the weekend? And she tells me, and I'm just aghast. Well, that's news to me. I didn't know we were doing that. And then she just pats my hand and says, well, I've told you five times this, this week that we're doing this. It just slipped my memory. It happens just about every, every day, to be honest with you. But we, we hear news all the time. We hear all kinds of news. And oftentimes we feel like we're kind of the last one in the loop, whether it's some news at work or probably some family drama. Your mom calls you and tells you the latest update on the family, and you're like, what? That happened? Just, I don't know if your family has drama, but they do. Sometimes it's big news that's life-altering, like your company is restructuring, and we all know what that means. Sometimes it's really good news, like, hey, you're going to have a baby. And whenever we hear that news, there's something that happens in between hearing it and then doing something about it that we kind of just gloss over. It's the fact that we actually believe the news, that we believe the news, that we're, the news we hear, hey, congratulations, you're pregnant with a baby. This is not an announcement, by the way. This is not. Um, that you hear the news you could easily go, no, no, really? But eventually, you become convinced of that news. And what happens, because you're convinced of it, is then you start to change. Then the dads go home and open up the crib box and start putting it together. Then you go home and you start thinking, okay, we got to stock up on diapers, we got to stock up on all these things. Your belief of the news changes your action. And what I want to talk about this morning is that if we're going to develop a rhythm of evangelism in our lives, we must be convinced that it is God's way of saving the lost. We must believe with all of our heart that this is the way God saves the lost. If we're going to develop a rhythm of proclaiming Jesus, we must be convinced of this. So look with me in Romans 10, 13 through 15. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then... Will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So as I said, if we're going to develop a rhythm of evangelism in our life, we must be convinced that it is God's way of saving the lost. Now, in theory, you're probably just already nodding your head. 
Oh, yeah, that that makes sense. I understand that. I know that. I've heard that. We would say, yes, God saves the lost through the proclamation of the gospel. But in practice, as believers, we often live and interact with others as if we don't really believe it. In our fear, we hope that someone else will proclaim the gospel of Jesus to them. In our busyness, we lose priority of proclaiming Jesus to others. In our pride, we may not proclaim Jesus to someone because we don't think they're going to respond as if we're the one that has all knowledge. In our attempt to be culturally appropriate, we shy away from conversations about Jesus. And in our lack of confidence, we hope maybe if we can just bring somebody to a church event or a church thing that they'll hear the gospel and respond. We could talk about all kinds of remedies to these problems, but I think the one we overlook is this. Oftentimes, we're not convinced to our core that proclaiming Jesus to others is the way God saves people. When we're convinced of this, we will develop a conviction. And when we are convicted that this is the way God saves people, then we will engage in the Great Commission. So I want to convince you of three things this morning, tell you three things that from this text that you must be convinced of. First, you must be convinced of the promise of proclaiming Jesus. You must be convinced of the promise. Look back in verse 13 with me. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Look at the reach of the promise. It goes to everyone. To everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. There was a problem in the Roman church. You had the Jews and the Gentiles, and they didn't exactly get along all the time. So they were making distinctions between each other. One was better than the other. The Jews had actually been expelled from Rome for a while, and they were, coming, were allowed to come back in in around AD 54-55 to integrate back in with the church, the Gentile church there, and there were problems. They were making distinctions between one another. They were limiting the everyone. But we do that too. We like to limit the everies of the gospel, as John Stott once said. Yeah, I, I can be saved, but I don't know about them. Their political party is not the same as mine. They look different than me. They dress different than me. They come from a different culture than me. I don't know. We limit the gospel. But this word for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There's also no sin too great that one can't be saved by calling upon the name of the Lord. That is a great promise. Look at the certainty of it. They will be saved. They will be saved. Saved from what? This is a quote from Joel chapter 2 talking about the coming judgment of God. God will pour out his wrath on sin, will finally and fully judge sin. That's what we're saved from when we call upon the name of the Lord. We are saved from the just punishment we deserve for our sin. Now we're saved by whom? By God himself. God sent Jesus to bear the weight, the punishment of our sin, and to give us his perfect righteousness so that we might be saved from that eternal judgment. But it's not the one sharing the gospel that saves someone. Paul says in Romans 1.16, for it is the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It is the power of God. It is not in our eloquence. It is not in using just the exact right words in the the right order that saves someone. It is the power of God 
through the honest and open proclamation of the gospel that people come to know him and be saved. But though the reach is broad and the certainty is sure, there's a condition. They must call on the name of the Lord. Now, this is not just a calling on the Lord for general help. This is not in an emergency situation calling on the Lord, oh, Lord, help me here. This is a specific calling on the Lord for deliverance from sin. This is a specific calling for salvation. Lord, save me. Forgive me of my sin. I trust in Jesus. This is a specific calling for deliverance from sin. So we see this, there is a promise to proclaiming Jesus, that everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Next, in verses 14 and 15, we must be convinced of the necessity of proclaiming Jesus to save the lost. The necessity of proclaiming Jesus to save the lost. Look back with me in verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. The question how speaks of the impossibility of believing in Jesus apart from a certain series of actions. How are they going to hear if there's nobody preaching? How are they going to call if they don't hear? And how are they going to call and believe if they don't hear? So we're going to walk through this a little bit. Why is it necessary that we must proclaim Jesus to save the lost? It's necessary because calling on Jesus is the only way to be saved. Acts 4.12, there is no name under heaven other than Jesus by which men must be saved. We must proclaim the gospel of Jesus in order for people to be saved. It's also necessary because the gospel is meant to be communicated. It's meant to be communicated, not just live a good life and hope somebody finds out. We're meant to share it with others with words. Romans 10, 17, just at the end of our passage, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. The gospel is meant to be heard. In fact, you compare all the world religions and you look back at what we have here in Scripture. All the other nations of the world, they had idols that they made, that they could see, that were right in front of them. This God is the only God who forbade doing that and said, you must listen to me. You must hear me. I'm going to give you my word so that you may know me. The gospel must be heard. You know, across the world, uh, there's stories of people coming to Christ and specifically of other faiths, Muslim brothers and sisters now who at one point had a dream about Jesus. They had a dream. They didn't know it was Jesus. They had a dream about a man coming to them, but they didn't know what the dream meant. But almost every time when you hear that story, that happens before someone comes to them with the gospel and explains in words in the gospel that the, the man they saw that asked them to come to him was Jesus himself, and this is what he did for them. The gospel demands communication. It demands us to use our words, not just hoping people find out by the way we live. 
So how does, some, how does the gospel actually get to someone? This is what this passage details. How does the, how does the gospel get to someone? Well, look at the, this process here. We're going to actually reverse it because he starts with somebody coming to Christ and calling on him. So he says, how are they going to call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? So what Paul does is works his way backwards. So we're going to start where Paul ends and go the other way. Okay? So he says, first, they must be sent. We are sent by Christ and his church. People hear the gospel. The starting point of that is when God sends people out to proclaim the gospel. Now, for Paul... He was very much called out by God to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Very much so. He was an apostle. But this is not limited to him. God calls him and saves him. And he goes to the, goes to the church. And then in Acts chapter 13, the church actually sends him out to go proclaim the gospel. How does, how does the sending of God and the sending of the church work together? Because God works through his people to send out people to share the gospel. He works through his church. God works inwardly through us, calling us, but he confirms it often with our church body. He confirms it by others, affirming what God has done in us. And that's the case that happened with Paul. The church there saw him and then sent him out. Saw that God had done a work in his life and sent him out. And that's the pattern. And every week at the end of our service, what do we say? You are sent. Because this is not limited to vocational pastors and preachers. This sending is for the church. The Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, 18 through 20, was to the apostles, but the apostles started the church and carried on that Great Commission. We all still carry that. Every one of us. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. That is what drives the church, not just people on staff. So we're sent out by Christ and his church to do what? To proclaim Jesus. This says without, they're not going to hear unless someone is preaching. Now, you hear preaching and you immediately think, okay, that's what you're doing. That's not for me. The word there in the Greek does not limit this activity to what happens here on a Sunday morning. It means a, the proclamation of a herald. And a herald was given a message by somebody in authority. And they had to deliver that message exactly as it was given to them. And they had the same authority as the one who gave it to them. This herald goes and he proclaims this message of the one in authority and does it exactly as he has said. And it carries that weight. So this is not just what's happening right now, this preaching. It is a proclaiming of Jesus. It is a person carrying the gospel of Jesus to people who have never heard. So we proclaim Jesus. We're sent to proclaim Christ to the lost so they may hear. And this is kind of the integral link here. Because if they don't hear... They cannot believe. If they don't hear, they will not believe. Why do we spend 
so much time, so much effort, and even money to get the gospel to our neighbors and to the nations. Because their eternity rests in the balance there. We must get the gospel out. They must hear. Because in hearing, they will have the opportunity to believe and to call upon Jesus. They will have the same opportunity that you and I had that first time when someone shared the gospel with us. Whether it was your mom, your grandmother, your granddad, somebody you worked with. They will have that joy. Do you remember that, by the way? Do you, do you remember that? They will have the opportunity to believe and to call on Jesus. That's how the gospel gets to someone. Christ sends his church to take the gospel to people who haven't heard it. The church proclaims Christ, remains faithful to the gospel, remains faithful to the truth of the gospel amid all the distractions and all the things that are happening around it so that they may hear about the good news of Jesus Christ and that they may believe and call on him for salvation. You must be convinced that hearing the gospel is necessary for salvation. And number three, you must be convinced of the goodness of the news. Verse 15. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. This is a quote from Isaiah 52. That's what he's, he's pulling from Isaiah 52. In Isaiah 52, this is what Isaiah 52, 7 says. It should be on the screen. It says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. So what was going on in Isaiah's day is that the kingdom of Israel had been split. You had a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom had fallen to Assyria in 722. They the Assyria came in, wiped them out. They had fallen under Assyrian rule. And the southern kingdom was shaking in its boots. And Isaiah is talking to them about a coming day when a ruler would come, a Messiah would come, and restore their people. Restore the people of God. And the picture is that of a battle. That you have people in, in the city and watchmen on the towers of the walls. And they're looking for news of the coming king. They're looking for news of victory. And on the horizon out there, one of the watchmen, he's looking and he sees a runner coming. He sees someone coming, a herald, a runner. And he starts to examine how he's running. It's just one. It's not a multitude of people. There's no retreat. It's just one. He's not frantically running as if he's scared, but he's got determination. Every step is hard. And fast. And he is running. And what they hear, what they hear is your God reigns. It goes from the people in the watchtowers to down in the people in the city. And everybody begins shouting, Our God reigns, we've won. 
And by the time the runner gets there, everybody's singing and shouting, and everybody's excited. And what we see is that they look at the runner's feet that are dusty, scarred, and scratched, bleeding. And they say, how beautiful are those feet? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news of the gospel? And what is this good news? Isaiah 52 actually details it for us. He gives us four ways to describe it. It says, He publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, and says, Your God reigns. First, there's peace, an end to hostility. As Matt prayed a moment ago, he talked about us being dead in our sin. Well, Ephesians 2 says the same thing. We were hostile to God in our sin. But through Jesus, we've been made new. We've heard the news that God wants to make peace, and he's done everything necessary to make peace. And we can be restored to a relationship with him. There's an end to the hostility between us and God. But there's happiness. There's really no no bad part of this news. There's no sadness that can corrupt it. It is nothing but good news. It's a message of salvation, of deliverance from the enemy, of deliverance from Satan, from sin. And from death. And ultimately the message is your God reigns. There's nothing you will face in this life that rises above the reign of God. These beautiful feet come preaching that news. They're characterized by obedience, urgency, determination, and joy. And I think about this. as I was cutting my grass yesterday and I was thinking about this. When I meet Jesus, what will my feet look like? When I meet Jesus, when you're done running your race, what kind of gospel mileage will be on your feet? What will your odometer read? You went hard for the gospel. You took the gospel to your children. You took the gospel to your grandchildren. You took the gospel to the students you teach. You took the gospel to the players you coach on your team. You took the gospel to the nations. You took it to your community. But something precedes all that. You must be convinced and believe in your heart that this is how God saves the lost, by proclaiming the gospel. It's because he was convinced of the necessity of proclaiming Christ that Jim Elliot gave his life to reach a people locked away in the jungle of Ecuador. And it was because that she was convinced of the necessity of proclaiming Christ to save the lost that his own wife went to the same people who killed her husband to continue sharing the gospel with them. It was because he was convinced of the necessity of proclaiming Christ to save the lost that George Lyle left America after being freed from slavery to become likely the first African-American missionary in Jamaica. And it's because we are convinced as a church of the necessity of proclaiming Christ to save the lost that we partner with and send missionaries across the world to plant churches and proclaim Jesus. Are you convinced 
Are you convinced that God has called his church, has called you to proclaim Jesus to your neighbors? Are you convinced that God, parents, that God has put you in the place you're in to communicate the gospel to your children? Are you convinced, church, that we exist to make Jesus known everywhere we go? Now, I make mention of these people, and we now know them as famous, but if you were to talk to them, they probably wouldn't give off that vibe. They would probably just say, I was just a normal person who believed what Jesus said. I was a normal person who believes what Scripture says. So I thought it might be appropriate for us to talk to one of our church members um, who I've known for a long time. This is Wes Holder. You can come on out if you're back there. Um, And yeah, this is Wes. So Wes uh, has been on several mission trips with us over the years. He's probably led a few and uh, also has led a life group here, uh, functioned as a deacon. But one of the things that has all, I've known about West is that he's very intentional with the gospel, that we've had lots of conversations about the gospel and sharing the gospel with the lost. And so I thought he would be an appropriate guy to come up and, and talk through this. So we want to encourage this culture of sharing Jesus. We want to encourage you and what better way to have Wes come and do this. So, Wes, I just want to ask you a few questions, and maybe you could help encourage us and even encourage me in our sharing of the gospel. Uh, first question I want to ask you is, how does the urgency of mission, the urgency of the reality of the lost, how does that shape your life? All right, I have a couple of confessions to make. <clears throat> One of them is, he gave me these questions ahead of time, all right? It's because I love you. But I made the promise not to study them. Um, I looked at them one time, and I wanted this to be real. I wanted this to be not scripted. I wanted you to see my heart. I wanted you to develop the same. I wanted you to depend on the Spirit to develop the same type of heart. And um, so what was the question again? (laughs) How does the urgency of mission and the reality of the lost shape your life? The day I was saved, um, I think my, obviously your whole life changes, but I understood the importance of what just happened. I mean, I was a later in life conversion. I talk about that to my class all the time. Um, I was fully engulfed in the world. And when I came to know Jesus, I knew that was the best news I'd ever heard and knew that was the message I need to share. I'll be honest with you though, I am burdened to share the gospel. I mean, it's a burden that never ever is satisfied. Um, I struggle with that and I wish I was more obedient than I am. So sharing the gospel can be a fearful thing. We have all kinds of thoughts that come into our mind, all kinds of questions. You know, have you experienced any of that fear and what specific fears have maybe popped up in your head? Yeah, I can get scared, kind of like I'm scared right now. <laughs> um, I think the number one thing that I'm afraid of, I'm definitely not afraid of the truth. Um, I'm confident in the truth. I'm not afraid of rejection when it comes to content. I'm re- afraid of rejection when it comes to relationship. 
Um, I enjoy people. I like hanging out. I like um, fellowship, not just with those that are saved, but those that are, don't know yet. And I fear that my message will affect that. Um, I know what it's like to not be invited to the party. I know what it's like to not be welcomed at the fellowship or the celebration because what I stand for isn't what they necessarily stand for. So I think that's the one thing that, that, that I get fearful of. In spite of that though, what gives you the confidence to continue to press on and share the gospel in spite of that reality? Man, this is really good news. Um, when I recognized, I think the more I learned about God, the more I saw his holiness, the, mo the more I saw my sinfulness and compared the two, they just don't mix. It's like oil and water, right? The holy has nothing to do with the profane. They just don't mix. And as I realize that I have access to this holiness again and access to a God that um, at one point was severed in a way because of my sin, when I realized I had access and I know how that access was granted through the work, through the person and work of Jesus, I can overcome any fear because he overcame everything for me. Mm. That's good. So I think sharing the gospel is something that we have to grow in obedience to. I think that we have to work through these fears, like you said, um, trust in the Lord. But has there been any particular thing that has helped you push that, whether it's a, a practice? I know you just mentioned understanding the holiness of God, but any particular rhythm or practice that's helped you be more faithful in sharing the gospel with the lost? Yeah, developing rhythms in my life have been very important. I am easily distracted. I am very analytical. I am very, um, um, I like to be in the know, that type of thing. Uh, so developing rhythms in life of renewing my mind to the truth of scripture is vitally important to me. I struggle um, with distraction. I struggle with uh, trying to win the affection of others and things like that. I struggle with my own importance in this world. And the more I feed myself or feed my flesh, the, the more I struggle with that. So developing a rhythm of contemplating and diving in and studying, not, I, I'll, get, I'll, I'll confess to you that I do not like devotionals. Sorry, I, I just can't do them. Um, the reason why I just feel like it's very surface level for me. But when I dive into all that God has revealed himself to be, when I see that and then see all that he did for me, that changes me. And I need that so regularly. I need that first thing in the morning. I need that at, the, at night. Um, I have to focus my attention. Man, my mind goes crazy and I wonder a lot uh, and wander a lot. So I, I try to keep myself focused. Um, by developing a rhythm of reading scripture and yeah. meditating on it. And hey, good practice when you're doing yard work, man. Put your earphones in and listen to something that's edifying. Listen to something that'll feed you. Because I tried to feed my spirit more than I feed my flesh. Good advice, good advice. Now, lastly, if there was one thing 
that encouraged you to be more vocal about the gospel or one encouragement you could give to us to encourage us to be more vocal about the gospel? What would that one thing be? Jesus deserves to be worshiped. I don't think we could end with a better phrase that Jesus deserves to be worshiped. Are you convinced of that?